We're going through this book of Colossians. You've joined us today as we've come to verses 3 to 8, which are interesting verses because Paul is actually entering into kind of a prayer. So he begins in verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And the article, the, is there before saints. The article is also there concerning the love. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, one of the things that doesn't show up in English when you're reading this particular text of the Scriptures, when he refers to the fact that things are understood and there's knowledge that's being gained, he's not talking about shallow stuff here. He uses a particular word that would indicate he's talking about people going beyond the surface level of things in faith, going to a deeper level of faith. And so he begins this epistle with notifying them of this prayer in that context. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of it and the exposition of it later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you and praise you for bringing us through another year. We are thankful for all you did for us, in us, with us, and even to us. As we're about to embark on a new year, it reminds us that we have more time for fresh development, for further development in our relationship with you. The past is the past. We can't undo the past, but we certainly can learn from the past and be certain to move forward in a way that pleases thee, and we pray that we would. I pray that 2024 will be a great year of opportunity and a great year of victory. We look to you for everything. We look to you for provisions. We look to you for protection, for purpose. We look to you for help. We look to you for hope. May this be a year of great triumph in your sight. May we grow more, may we learn more and minister more, witness more, develop more. Grant us wisdom to walk as very wise people of God. Lord, this has been a sad year for us as we've lost at least 15 people from this fellowship. Most recently in the case of Margie Johnson and Ann Cockman, we want to uphold their families in prayers, continue to minister to them and comfort to them and sustain them. It's been a tough year to see these people go into eternity, but it's been a great year for them because all of them are with you and they're enjoying everything that heaven offers, and so for them it's been fabulous. And I pray that that reality of life being like a vapor and brief will cause us all to focus this year on that which is heavenly. May the beat of our heart be to please thee. I pray that you would grant this to us. I pray that you would develop that focus in us, and we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We get emails and phone calls all the time, and most of them are pretty much positive in the sense that 
when I see it pop up or Lynn calls and says you have a phone call, I am happy to take the call or read the thing, but then there are some people you just go, oh, no. If you want to know if you're on that list, ask Lynn. I'll be gone. <laughs> she pretty much knows. Because they're a disaster and wreck. They're the kind of people that are just a drain and pain. I'm being real frank here. They always have some issue about them. They never seem to have any happiness. They never seem to have any joy. They never seem to have a good day. They never seem to have a positive attitude about anything. Frankly, they're just downers. And they're absorbed with themselves and their own problems. And then you have these other people. You see them pop up. You see the phone call come in. Or you see them coming and they light you up. I mean, it's just a joy. They have a zest for life. They have a love for truth. There's a joy in them. There's vibrancy and vitality in them and to them. And you just love to see them coming because they put a smile on your face. Those are the kinds of people that you can truly say, man, I thank God for you always. I just thank God for you always. Now, Paul was the kind of apostle who would thank God for anyone who had responded to the grace of God. He was living at a time when you have a religious world that's teaching all sorts of rituals and works. So whenever anyone responded to the grace of God, the free grace of God that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was very thankful for people who had responded to grace. And then when they took it a step further and developed in their faith and in their love for the scriptures, I mean, he was just on cloud nine. And apparently, the vast majority of people in the Colossian church were people like that. Paul had never been to Colossae. He'd never been to the city. He'd never seen most of the people who were living there, most of the people who were in the church. But Epaphras was from there. And Epaphras had traveled to see Paul. He told him about the church. He told him about what was happening in the church. He told Paul the way the Colossians were responding to the word of God. He told Paul about the way they had responded to the grace of God. And as Paul listened to that in Rome, in jail, it thrilled him. He was thankful for these people. In fact, when you go through the book of Colossians, there's something about his thankfulness that shows up in every chapter. You'll certainly see it in verse 3 this morning. It shows up again in chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7. It shows up again in chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, chapter 4, verse 2. So Paul was very, very appreciative of these people in this church, and he wanted them to be thankful as well. So when he writes this beginning to basically his epistle and letter, what he says is, I want you to know we give thanks to God for you. This team that's with me, we give thanks to God for you, and we pray for you all the time. And the reason that we do that is because what we've learned about you the things that Paul had learned about the Colossians prompted him to continually thank God for them, even though he'd never been there. He didn't personally know most of the people. He's not delusional in using religious rhetoric here when he says, I thank God for you. He means it. I mean, this is legitimate. He's not wasting words here on paper and ink. And what a privilege it is to have a guy like Paul praying for you. That's as good as it gets. you got the Apostle Paul and that team with him, and they're praying for these people at the church. That's one thing that I really miss about Mr. Miles. 
being gone to be with the Lord, I know where he's at. I know I'm going to see him again. I hope the rapture occurs soon and I get to see him again soon. But whether or not that happens, it used to just thrill me that he was always praying for me personally and praying for this church. I consider that to be like the ultimate. And that's the way it was for the Apostle Paul. He was thankful for these people. He was praying for these people, even though there were different problems. And all of us have issues. And even though there were different problems, Paul was still able to thank God for them. And there are four main prayer points that he makes in this text. First of all, this prayer of thanksgiving was being prayed personally and continually. Paul could give total thanksgiving for this church. Verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. I want to point out the word prayer. It's prosukomai. Different words are used for prayer. This particular word is that reverent moment where a person goes face to face in the presence of God. This particular word, as near as I can track it, is not used of quick prayer. This is very thoughtful prayer. It's prayer that realizes I'm going to go in the presence of God and talk to God about you. That's the word he uses. He said, I want you to know that I am with a group of people and we are continually praying for you and we're continually praying for you always. And there are seven facts that are brought out about this that I want to point out to you. First of all, it was a pastoral type of prayer. Paul himself is praying for these people because he feels responsible for them and we do have a responsibility to pray for each other. We have the responsibility to pray for the church. Secondly, it was a plural prayer. Paul says, we, he uses the pronoun we, which is a plural pronoun. Paul, Timothy, Epaphras were at least involved in this. And that tells us something also, ladies and gentlemen. Private prayer is important, but so is plural prayer. It's very important to gather with the people of God at times and pray. There's power in that. Thirdly, it was persistent prayer. He uses a present tense verb. He says, we give continual thanks to God in the present. It was a paternal prayer. He's aiming this prayer at God the Father. That's what prayer is. It's aimed at God the Father through Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit of God. Then it was a perpetual prayer. He adds the word always which is intriguing because he uses a present tense verb that says we give continual thanks to God. That's the way you can understand it. And continually we're praying for you. And then he adds that word always. He could have just left that out. You would have got that from just reading the grammar. But he adds always because he wants these people to know you really are always when we pray on our hearts and minds and we personally pray for you. Sixthly, it was a personal prayer. He prayed for you. He prayed for you. I want you to know we do that here. And I hope you'll do it for us as we're gone, taking a break for a few weeks. It'll go by quick and we'll be back soon. But I hope you'll pray for us. We will pray for you. And I want you to know you are connected to this church. We pray for every person connected to this church by name. By name. We actually started this 23 plus years ago. We started and prayed for everybody in this whole Portage, Texas Township area by name. Took us 11 years. But you who are connected to this church, you're not just an afterthought. 
We literally do pray for you specifically. You need to understand that. We pray for you. We pray for your children. If you're connected to this church and we know about it, or you're in that book that we have that lists the names of people and we have record of you being here, you're prayed for in this church personally. That's the responsibility of the church. And seventh, it was a positive prayer. It was a prayer of thanks. I like what H.A. Ironside said, few men have ever felt the great need of intercession for the people of God, for he knew well the fearful opposition of Satan, the prince and God of this world, toward those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He realized the prevailing power of prayer to defeat the adversary. Now, we need to realize what we're up against here in this world. We're up against not only Satan, we're up against religion. We're up against denominations. And for people to actually embrace grace and come to terms with grace, that it's not religion, it's not denomination, it is totally found in Jesus Christ, man, we need to be praying to get that. Because they won't come to that on their own. And again, we need to remind ourselves, he's praying for a church and group of people that he had not personally met. He knows that one of the responsibilities he has as an apostle is to pray for those churches, to pray for those people. That's what he did. And by the way, this is fascinating to me. It was not uncommon for Paul to thank God for people at a church. He thanked God for the Romans. He thanked God for the Corinthians. He thanked God for the Ephesians. He thanked God for the Philippians. He thanked God for the Colossians and the Thessalonians. He thanked God for Timothy. He thanked God for Philemon, the only church that you find that Paul writes a letter to where he doesn't thank God is those Galatians. Those Galatians. See, those people were getting out there. They're drifting away from the grace gospel. He wasn't about to thank God for them. He said, man, I marvel you're so quickly removed from the grace of God. And if somebody comes and preaches a different message, let them be accursed. He did not thank God simply because people went to any church. Now, as I mentioned, we pray for everyone in this church by name, and most of the time, for most of the people, we can thank God, but not all of them. I'm being blunt honest. There are some on the list, when we pray for them, it's not we can thank God for them. It's like we hope they get life straightened out. They don't seem to be serious about God. They seem to be excuse makers. They don't seem to take spiritual things seriously and rarely show up. They're like the Galatians. They're just drifting. Well, Paul didn't pray a thanksgiving prayer for people like that, neither do we. But any person or church that was embracing the grace gospel and were starting to mature in the Lord, Paul was thankful for them, and he prayed for them. And prayer is a very important part of the church moving forward for the Lord. When you have men and women who pray for the church and thank God for the church, it's one of the keys to God blessing that church. That's why we have prayer that we stress in this church, and we have multiple prayer meetings in this church, and we ask you to pray because we realize going forward and doing what God's doing with this ministry is all an answer 
to the prayers of the people of God. So Paul wanted these people to know, I want you to know I'm praying for you personally and continually. Secondly, I'm praying for you for specific reasons, verses 4 and 5. Since, this introduces the reason for their thanksgiving prayer always. Since, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now the fact is, the Colossians gave Paul several reasons for which he could thank God. Paul had heard of great things that were taking place in some of their lives. I mean, it would light you up. Dr. Curtis Vaughn appropriately observed the content of the thanksgiving is determined by the condition of the church. So Paul realized there are people that are coming to life there in Colossae, and even though it's not a big major metropolis, he realized, man, that little church there is starting to grow. And there are specific reasons why he thanked the Lord. First of all, he thanked the Lord because he heard of the Colossians' faith. That's what he said, since we heard of your faith. And this is critical, because you have Paul realizing that these people have really come to terms with the grace gospel, which is a gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. And he had learned that they were pretty solid in that. That's why he wants to write this letter, because people were trying to pull him off of that. But he realized that they had been well-grounded in the fact that they had been taught and the doctrine of the grace of God. And he was thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, does it really matter what people believe? Does it really matter? I used an illustration Spurgeon once used. Suppose you're in a river and you're flowing toward a waterfall. If you go over, you're dead. And you have two options. You can grab a log or you can grab a lifeline somebody's throwing to you, throwing you a rope. You can be well-meaning and you can grab the rope, you'll be saved. Or you can say, you know what, this log will hold me up. I guess I'll grab onto that. You're going over. Yeah, it matters what you believe. It matters the object of your faith. And the object of their faith was not in themselves. Their object was not the church, not a denomination, not the Old Testament law, not Sabbath day rituals. The object of their faith was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I can thank God for that. He would never thank God for people who were trying to put themselves back under the law. He would never thank God for people who were trying to put themselves back under legal codes. This Colossian church was filled with people that had believed totally and only in Jesus Christ. Their faith was aimed straight at Christ to save them. That's what this communion thing's all about. I mean, that's exactly what this communion service illustrates. There's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the noun faith is articular. Paul says, I'm not thankful that you have just any kind of faith. I'm thankful for the fact that you have specific faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he thanked God for their faith. Secondly, he thanked God for the Christian's love. As we mentioned, Colossae was located on a major trade route, and many people traveled by this little town, and they would stop there. And Paul is very thankful because he heard that these people were truly blossoming in love, but it wasn't any love. Watch this. Verse 4, the love which you have for all the saints. And the noun saints is qualified by the article the. So 
These Colossians had a love for other believers who had believed in Jesus Christ and the grace of God like they had. This church had a love for those who trusted in Jesus Christ just like they did. This was not some ecumenical love that loved all religious people. This was not some love that said, let's love perverts and heretics. This church is being praised by Paul because they were a church developing in love for the saints who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their reputation spread. I want to read you a letter I got this week. A few months ago, and some of you actually share in what this letter says, two ladies from Canada visited us here. They literally came to the United States and literally came to this church in Michigan because they had heard of our ministry online and they wanted to come see it. One of the ladies for Christmas wrote a letter that she sent out to numerous, numerous people. Numerous people. It's one of those letters they write, you know, it's kind of an annual letter giving an update. And she had had a pretty, one of the ladies had a pretty rough year. At the beginning of the year, she went through some major struggles. So she decided to send out this letter. She included the letter in a card that she wrote. I want to read you a portion of it. I also did have some good times, yes, and that was my trip to the States to Kalamazoo. It was our first stop. I'll never ever forget our first stop. If I ever wondered, and I have, what should the Church of Christ look like, well, I found the answer. That church in Kalamazoo. The unexpected welcome, the interest people had in meeting us two Canadians, the generous gifts of study books, our great host, Kay and Wayne, beautiful area of town. We let them stay with Wayne and Kay because they got electricity and running water <laughs> in that dilapidated shack they live in. Man, that's praiseworthy, isn't it? You sharing that. You made them feel welcome. They had a love for the Lord. They had a faith and love for the word. They travel halfway around the world to be here, just to be here on a Sunday, and you made them feel like family. That's what this Colossian church did. When it would spot people that love the Lord and they love the word of God, they were gravitated to those kinds of people, and they took care of those kinds of people. These Colossians were not involved in loving, deceptive, religious, philosophical teaching. This kind of love that Paul's talking about is not a love that says, let's just go beyond anything and love everybody. That's not it. They were zeroed in on people who had responded to the grace of God as they had responded, and Paul said, I thank God for you like that. Thirdly, his thanksgiving prayer was because he had heard of the Colossians' hope in verse 5, because of the hope, the hope. And where's the hope? It's heaven. These were people who had to go through some pretty difficult struggles, but they had a faith in Christ Jesus, and that faith in Christ Jesus gave them the hope of going to heaven. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your only hope and only chance. We're not going to go to heaven because we're good. 
because none of us really are. And we're not going to go to heaven because we're religious or we pick a few laws we kind of gravitate to and we'll try to obey those, but the others will just say, ah, fooey on that. We're not going to go to heaven by any of that. One faith in one person will take us to heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. And Paul said, these people have figured that out. And because they figured that out, I am very thankful for these people. What you have here, faith, hope, and love, is a trilogy of, of things. Faith is looking backward to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables one to experience the grace of God. You have love that looks presently to others with the same faith that are developing in the same way, and hope looks forward to the future and going to heaven. Paul said, I'm thankful for what I'm hearing about this church. I mean, this church is getting something done for the Lord. These are not fickle people here. These are people who have serious minds. These are the faithful brethren. And he said, I thank God for them. His third point is this thanksgiving was for the impact of the true gospel, the true grace gospel. He said, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, and you'll notice down at the end of verse 6, and you understood the grace of of God in truth. There's only one true gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Notice that. One true gospel. It's the grace of God gospel. And there are six facts that are brought out about this grace of God gospel. Number one is specifically come to them, literally into them. And the present tense of the participle would indicate that it's always in them. It's always in them. Once they've responded to the grace gospel, they are always people who've responded to the grace gospel. Once you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved forever. Whether you know it or not, believe it or not, like it or not, that's the way it is. According to the grammar. You have experienced the grace of God and that's forever. Secondly, the grace gospel has specifically gone to the entire world. Continually gone to the entire world. The gospel of grace is what needs to be communicated all over the world, not religious stuff. As of right now in the month of December, and we're having a record, record month, we have over 2,000 downloads in Oregon. We have over 1,000 downloads in Switzerland. We have over 1,000 downloads in Hong Kong. We have over 1,000 downloads in China. When we went to work on putting this manuscript together, we were at that point this month downloaded in 67 foreign nations of the world. It's now 71. Now what's drawing people? The grace gospel. That's it. This is what the world needs to know. Religion isn't going to save you. Only Jesus Christ is going to save you from your sins. The third gospel reality is the grace gospel constantly bears fruit and increases. He said it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Now this is so important, ladies and gentlemen, because it is an accurate presentation of the grace gospel that bears fruit. It is not the manipulation of a minister. It's an accurate presentation of the grace gospel that bears fruit. Now that's true in church history and it's true in what we've seen God do in people's lives. Paul, chief of sinners, that's what he called himself. Chief of sinners. Grace of God saves him, changes him. Peter, party boy. You go through those 12 apostles 
in that study with John on Wednesday night, you'll see that. Peter was a rugged guy. Grace of God saved him. Augustine, a licentious libertine. Grace of God saves him. C.I. Schofield, a divorced drunk. Martin Luther, a religious priest. I have personally seen men and women who've responded to the grace gospel who have had immoral lives in every possible way. I've seen people, no people personally, who have been in jail, they've had abortions, they've been strippers and prostitutes. I've seen God's grace words save them all. You can't accomplish that by raising hands and walking aisles and doing all the religious malarkey that people... It's the grace gospel, the grace gospel that bears fruit. The problem is, it gets all convoluted in what people say is the grace gospel. Which brings us to the fourth reality, the grace gospel must be heard. That's what he says, since the day you heard of it. That's what people need to hear. They need to hear the grace gospel. They don't need to hear stories and cutesy little things. They don't need to hear bands. What they need to hear is the grace gospel. That's what most people in the world aren't hearing, the true presentation of the grace gospel. There's a lot of religion, but there's very little presentation of the grace gospel. And this doesn't happen in the world. It doesn't happen in the United States. It doesn't happen much in Michigan or Kalamazoo. They're hearing anything but an accurate presentation of the grace gospel. Ask them, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? Listen to the answers. You can't be saved without hearing the grace gospel. But then he adds an interesting dimension to this. He says the gospel has to be understood in truth. Verse 6, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace gospel, of God in truth. This is a critical point. To grow in faith and to grow in a deeper knowledge of faith, it requires an understanding of truth that has to be taught. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We're not talking here when Paul says understanding some shallow level. This is knowledge upon knowledge. Nobody can be saved without understanding the gospel. In order for God to truly save people, there has to be an accurate presentation of the grace of God. The grace of God demands understanding Pauline epistles. And especially, you start with Romans, but then you go to work on understanding these Pauline epistles because Paul is the one who says, I'm the apostle singled out by God to reveal the doctrine of the grace of God. And so you have to understand that truth to grow. But then he brings up another fact. The grace gospel was learned from Epaphras. He says in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Now, that to me says something very important. You can't grow deep on your own. It isn't going to happen. I know personally it won't happen because I've lived this. I've gone through this. I mean, God does not use angels to communicate truth to us in a way that will take us deep. There is a lot in the Bible you can understand by reading it, but then there are other things you come to, and somebody has to know what that is talking about so that you can make sense of it. And Paul said, you people have been under the ministry of Epaphras. 
You've learned of him. And the verb learn means that Epaphras was the one who presented the grace truth to the point that they were able to understand it, ascertain it, and learn it. I'll tell you, one of the greatest compliments paid to me just in the last weeks was a little young man from the church came up and said, man, I understand that stuff. I'm going, that's the way it's supposed to be. Understanding the grace gospel doesn't come by osmosis. Somebody has to be taught. Somebody has to teach. Understanding the grace gospel is not a feeling. It's not a philosophy. It's not a psychology. It's not a theory. It's not instruction in religion. The gospel is truth revelation of God that unravels the grace of God, and somebody has to communicate it. It must be learned, and in order for it to be learned, it must be taught by somebody. Epaphras, and Paul brings this out, he's the one, Paul says, who took the grace gospel from me and he taught it to you. I personally have taken the grace gospel that I learned from John Miles, I've taught it to you. John Miles took that grace gospel that he learned from Lewis Berry Chafer and taught it to him. Lewis Berry Chafer took that grace gospel from C.I. Schofield and he taught it to him. That's the way it works. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2. The things that have been committed to faithful men teach others. They in turn will be able to teach others about him. And there are two facts about Epaphras. He was a beloved fellow servant. That's what Paul says about him. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, Paul said, I want you to know I love this guy. I mean, he's a no-nonsense guy. He's a fellow worker with me and serving the Lord. And also, he's a faithful servant. Uses an interesting word there, diakonos, which is the word from which we get our English word deacon. So Paul viewed his teaching ministry in presenting the grace of God as a very sacred type of ministry. They had not learned the grace gospel from just anybody. They learned it from very faithful men of God. And then he wraps up this part of the letter by saying the prayer for Epaphras was the Spirit's work. The report that he gave us was the Spirit's work. He says in verse 8, And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, any salvation that takes place, any growth that takes place, any maturity that happens, and you need to be in Tim's pneumatology class because he goes through all of this stuff, is the Holy Spirit's work. It's the practical work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts. I mean, he's the one who tracks us down and convicts and turns on those bulbs in our hearts and minds and brains that we realize that only Jesus Christ can save us. This is the only place in the book of Colossians where Paul's going to mention the work of the Holy Spirit, and he does it up front. And I think the reason why he does that is because this is a book that actually is going to be devoted to exalting Jesus Christ. But before he launched into that part of it, he wanted us to understand that everything that we have has been wrought by the Spirit of God. He has taken that presentation of the grace gospel and grace teaching, and he's the one who has produced salvation, he's produced love, he's produced unity. And what Paul will develop in this book is everything that you need for salvation. Everything you need to grow deep in your relationship with God is found in Jesus Christ and the written scriptures. Jesus Christ is 
God's grace gift of salvation. He's not a way. He is the only way to salvation. You believe in him, the hope of heaven is yours. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior right now, settle it. We've had a lot of people do that over the years, right where they sit, quietly, privately, invite Jesus Christ into your life to save you. Call on him to come in and take over your life. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for just allowing these scriptures to be translated into our language so we can carefully analyze them and go through them. Lord, this is rich. It's rich. We're blessed people. I pray that we'll fall deeper and deeper in love with the scriptures as we launch into 2024. I pray that we'll be more serious about our commitment, about our faith. Lord, for what you do with us, we want to thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.